0: Hi there. Thank you for joining me on my new podcast. Tell me a true crime story. I'm your host, Holly. In my last episode, I said I'd let you know a little about me in upcoming episodes. Well, I'm a mom of three. Two of my daughters are out of the house now, and my son is in high school. I have a fiance named Bill. My mom lives with us and I'm thankful to have her in my life and have her close by. You'll get to know my family members because I plan to have them join me on the podcast sometimes, not because they possess any special knowledge on the subject or anything, just for their input and commentary. I'm just starting out and I have lots of ideas. I'm really excited to see how this podcast changes and evolves over time. Now, why did I start a true crime podcast? Well, I've always loved true crime for as long as I can remember. In fact, when I went to college as an adult, I changed my major partway through from business administration to criminal justice administration. I love psychology, mystery, suspense, and cliffhangers. I, like many others, like Many of you listening, probably, I find the criminal mind fascinating. I love the thrill of the hunt and digging for clues. I always say that my dream job is to be a detective, but mm, I think you have to be a cop first before you can make detective. And I'm not cut out for that, so I'd never make it through the police academy. Anyway, I guess another reason I wanted to start a true crime podcast is because I thought I could do it well. So, one thing that's really important to me in doing this is that I want to cover cases with a victim first approach. I want to talk about the families of victims and the victims. As they say, I want to cover how they lived, not only how they died. And the sad part about that is sometimes information about the victims is hard to come by. There's often just not that much information out there about them before they became a victim. And um, I intend to end each podcast talking about victims or victims' families. So now I want to get to know you a little bit. Please leave me comments on my social media pages. Let me know where you're from and how you found out about the podcast. Let me know what you like and what you don't like about it. That would really help me out. I'm new to all of this. I'm no techie and I'm no sound engineer, but I do vow to learn and get better at this. Thank you again for listening and allowing me to keep you company as you go about your day. I know that everybody's super busy and life is so hectic and the days go by so fast. Um, Life can be really hard sometimes. And um, I'm just glad that you're here with me and spending a little time with me to give this new podcast of mine a, a chance. And I hope that you all are happy, healthy, and safe. Now, let me tell you a true crime story. So last week in episode three, we discussed the crime and the injuries suffered by the victims. We learned about the potential motive for the crime, who the perpetrators were, the sentences they received, and where they are now. Today, we're going to discuss the fallout from this crime, and we're going to talk about the victims. This is episode four, the Deltona Massacre, the third and final part of this story. After the murders at 3106 Telford Lane in Deltona, Florida, there were repercussions for four probation officials at the Florida Department of Corrections. Troy Victorino, the so-called ringleader and mastermind of this horrible crime, his probation officer and three of that probation officer's supervisors were fired. According to an article in 2004, um, August of 2004, by David Royce for the Associated Press, the Florida Department of Corrections secretary at the time, James Crosby, he said that Victorino's probation officer should have arrested him for violating his probation before the killings. In fact, there were two missed opportunities to do so before the murders happened. So let's go back and let me tell you about Victorino's prior criminal record before the massacre in Deltona. His rap sheet begins with an arrest at the age of 16 for grand theft auto and arson. He was released for these offenses after two years in prison. Eight weeks after his release in 1996, at the age of 19, he was arrested again for aggravated battery and grand theft auto. A 2004 Orlando Sentinel article detailed what that victim's mother said Victorino did to her son in a vicious attack on March 27, 1996. She told the Orlando Sentinel that Victorino pummeled her son in the head with a walking stick. He ripped off one of his ears, crushed the bones in his face, and shoved the walking stick into her son's mouth, breaking all of his teeth. One of his eyes was left permanently damaged in this brutal attack. Then, after beating her son nearly to death, Victorino stole her son's Honda Civic CRX. According to this same article, Victorino was initially charged with attempted first-degree murder, but he was able to plead down to aggravated battery. He served six years in prison for this crime, and he was released in October of 2003. According to Volusia County, Florida jail records, he was arrested again two months later in December of 2003. He was also arrested on July 29, 2004, right before the murders occurred. Both of those arrests were for battery. In fact, on July 30th, when Aaron Belanger went to her grandparents' home and discovered that people had been squatting there, Victorino was in jail at that time. When he bonded out of jail and discovered his things were missing from her grandparents' house, that's when the trouble started. Why in the heck did the judge set Victorino's bail at $2,500, considering his criminal history? what? That's just, just failures all around there. So, wow. Okay. So remember the murders happened on early Friday morning, August 6th. Victorino had his regular routine monthly check-in with his probation officer the day before on Thursday, August 5th. He should have been arrested at that visit his probation officer could have and should have arrested Victorino at that meeting. He could have arrested him right then and there on Thursday without a warrant. The other missed opportunity to arrest Victorino came just days before that. Probation officials were aware that he'd been arrested on July 29, 2004, and when they were made aware of this arrest, they were required to file revocation paperwork within 48 hours of learning of his arrest. His probation would have been revoked, and the lives of Aaron, Flacco, Roberto, Jonathan, Michelle, and Anthony could have been saved. Mm. Now let me tell you about our victims, what a light they were in this world, and what we all lost that day when their lives were stolen from them. Erin Margaret Belanger was born on July 14, 1982 to Pam and Bill in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. She grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts. Her dad described her as a strong-willed woman and an independent spirit. She graduated from Dracut High School in 2000. Then she worked as a dietary aide at Fairhaven Nursing Home, and that's where she met her boyfriend, Francisco I.O. Roman. He went by the nickname Flacco. He would subtly, subtly flirt with her at work. He called her by the nicknames Pink or Margaret. Pink because she had her blonde hair dyed bright pink, and Margaret because that was her middle name. She didn't speak Spanish. She'd taken French in school instead. And Flacco didn't speak much English, but they somehow communicated anyway. They were in love, so they didn't let that stand in the way of them being together. Aaron's dad, Bill, encouraged Aaron to move to Florida to quote unquote make a better life. So she and Flacco moved to Florida in April of 2004. They found a house to rent about a week later after arriving in Florida. It was a three-bedroom and had lots of fruit trees in the yard. It was only about four miles from her grandparents' house on Providence Boulevard. Erin and Flacco both got a job at Burger King located at 2790 Elkham Boulevard in Deltona. This was about two and a half miles from their house on Telford Lane. They wanted to save up money to get a car. Francisco Flaco Ayo Roman was born in Puerto Rico. His family lived in a rural area and they were poor. So he and his four siblings were adopted out when he was very young. Some sources say he was two years old when this happened, and some say he was about four years old. Either way, he was very young. A couple of years before Flaco died, he was reunited with his brother, Benjamin Bonilla, After meeting his brother, when Flacco still lived in Massachusetts, he'd moved nearer to his brother. He lived there for a time before he moved to Florida with Aaron. Flacco also had training as a nurse. Jonathan Gleason was born in Atlanta, Georgia on August 10, 1986. Jonathan was a very accomplished young man and had many talents and hobbies. He did very well all throughout school and participated in many school activities. He also taught himself three languages Spanish, Portuguese, and French and taught himself how to play the guitar. Wow, that's awesome. He loved drawing and making cartoons, skateboarding, and playing video games. He was involved in theater and acted in school plays. He danced. He liked to help his mom in the garden. He wrote poems and songs. In fact, he was the lead singer in a band called Karma Diver. He volunteered at Habitat for Humanity, and he was an active member of PETA, which stands for People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Patricia Gleason, who's Jonathan's mom, she told the Orlando Sentinel that Jonathan would be glad that there was justice for little George, who was Aaron's dachshund. Troy Victorino was found guilty of cruelty to animals for the stomping death of little George the Dachshund. Jonathan had strong anti-war views and political views. He was an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He loved his family and enjoyed spending time with his brother, his sisters, his nieces and nephews, and his grandma, Anne. Jonathan graduated from Pine Ridge High School in Deltona. He got exceptional scores on his SAT and therefore had offers to attend some really great schools, including Harvard Medical School. He wanted to study medicine and become a surgeon. He wanted to travel the country to treat the sick in underprivileged areas. His mom even started working toward her nursing degree so that she could accompany him. Wow, that was so sweet. When I learned of that, I had to include that in here that his mom started working toward a nursing degree so that she could go with him and travel around and treat sick people in poor areas well. So Jonathan was just four days shy of his 18th birthday when he was murdered. He was looking forward to turning 18 so that he could vote he was working at Little Caesar's Pizza in Deltona, where he was to become an assistant manager when he turned 18. He was saving to buy his first car. Jonathan was one of the victims who didn't live at the house on Telford Lane. He was just spending the night there on the night of the murders. According to his mom, he had a fierce independent streak. She said he'd run away from home about a week earlier in a show of Teenage Rebellion. The night he was murdered... He was, that was only his second night staying there at the Telford Lane home. Another of the victims who did not live at the Telford Lane home and who was just visiting on the night of the murders was 28 year old Roberto Gonzalez. He worked at the same Burger King as victims, Aaron, Flacco, and Michelle. He rented a room in the home of one of the managers at the Burger King where he worked but he was spending the night at 3106 Telford Lane on the night of the murders because he was going to do a painting job with Anthony Vega in Tampa early the next morning. Roberto rode inline skates to work at Burger King, and most days after work he would skate to the home of his friends Eva and Rocky to visit with them. Eva shared with the South Florida Sun-Sentinel that Roberto had left his seven-year-old daughter in the Bronx with her grandmother. He'd planned to bring her down to live with him in Florida once he was settled. He was hoping to make manager at Burger King or land a job as a cable TV technician. Roberto was from New York City and had loved playing games of stickball and handball as a kid there, but he said he never wanted to go back. And that was according to his friend, Eva. Michelle Ann Nathan was born on January 16th, 1985 in Tulsa, Oklahoma to Steve and Kay. She graduated from Pine Ridge High School in Deltona in 2003. After graduating, she went into the Army and was stationed in Missouri. However, she was discharged for medical reasons and she returned to Deltona. Upon returning, she got a job at the same Burger King as Aaron and Flacco. She shared the rental house with them on Telford Lane, too. Michelle and her boyfriend, Anthony Vega, split the rent with Aaron and Flacco. According to her mom, Ann, Kay, her mom is Kay. According to her mom, Kay, Michelle really loved animals and wanted to study to become a vet. At the time of her murder, Michelle was soon to be an aunt and she was really looking forward to it. The baby girl was named Emily Michelle after her aunt. Michelle was her parents' princess. That's what they called her. She had two small star tattoos on her hips and a tattoo that said princess. After she died, her dad had the same tattoo put on his arm. Her mom, Kay recalled for the Orlando Sentinel that her daughter would sneak up behind her and hug her tight. Then she would say, Mommy, tell me I'm beautiful. Michelle wouldn't let go until her mom said those words. Wow, that's heartbreaking. Sadly, I couldn't find too much information on 34-year-old Anthony Vega. I wanted to learn more about him, his hobbies, his family, And his early life, but there just wasn't much out there. I did learn that he was from the Bronx in New York. He'd moved away from there to escape the bad neighborhoods. He was the boyfriend of Michelle Nathan. He'd moved in with her at 3106 Telford Lane about two weeks prior to the murders. They'd met at Burger King, where they both worked alongside Aaron Flacco and Roberto. And Anthony was known for telling jokes and for his sense of humor. On Sunday, August ninth, 2004, a large group of mourners set sail out of Boston Harbor. A bagpiper played a slow melody. The people threw pink carnations into the water. There were tears and smiles. There were memories shared among them. These people were the friends and family members of victims Aaron Belanger and Flaco Ayo Roman. Bill Belanger, father of Aaron Belanger, tossed a pink wreath into the water to honor the memory of his strong-willed daughter, who liked to dye her hair pink. Benjamin Bonilla stood beside him and tossed a blue wreath into the water to honor the memory of his brother, Flacco. They all watched as the flowers and wreaths drifted away on the choppy waters. They scattered the ashes of Aaron and Flacco that day in the ocean so that the pair could be together always. Michelle Nathan was laid to rest at Deltona Memorial Gardens in Orange City, Florida. She has two stars just like the tattoos on her hips and the word princess engraved on her grave marker. Also on her grave marker, it reads, Daughters are forever. On a memorial bench in her honor near her grave is engraved, Mommy, tell me I'm beautiful. Services were held for Jonathan Gleason on Saturday, August 14, 2004, at the Church, Church of Christ Latter day Saints in DeLand, Florida. I couldn't find any further details about where he was laid to rest or if he was cremated. Unfortunately, I could not find any information concerning services for Roberto Gonzalez and Anthony Vega their final resting place, or whether or not they were cremated. Now, about the house where the bludgeoning murders occurred. It's still there today. You can see it on my social media pages. I took a road trip and went by there and took pictures of it. Here's a little something I learned about that house while doing research for this case. According to a 2018 WESH2 news article, a past owner of the home where the massacre occurred, successfully petitioned the City of Deltona in 2015 to change the address of the home. The address was changed from 3106 Telford Lane to 3102 Telford Lane. I also took pictures of Aaron's grandparents' former home, where at least two of the convicted killers had been squatting before the murders. You can see pics of both of those homes, on my social media pages on Facebook and Instagram. It's at tell me a true crime story. And on Twitter it's at tell me a TCS pod. Now I'm going to leave you with the words of Kay Shuckwit, the mother of victim Michelle Ann Nathan An Orlando Sentinel article has her quoted as saying, quote, this was such a horrific, horrific thing that had happened. I don't want people to dwell, but I don't want them to forget who these kids were. We were sleeping safely in our beds, and who would think that these six people were in that house fighting for their lives, and unfortunately, all six lost the battle. End quote. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tell Me a True Crime Story. Please become a part of Tell Me A True Crime Stories podcast family by following me on social media. Facebook and Instagram are at Tell Me A True Crime Story and Twitter is at Tell Me A TCS Pod. You can really help me out by doing these three things, sharing the podcast episodes on social media, and remember to post in the comments and tell me where you're from and how you found out about the podcast. Number two, telling your friends and family about the podcast. And number three, adjusting your settings to auto-download new episodes as they become available. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy life to help grow our podcast family. Hugs to all of you. And I will see you in the next episode when I'll tell you another true crime story.